Pods from the Far Beyond. This is a series of podcasts by Paldon Jenkins, and I live on an organic farm at the far end of Cornwall. And these podcasts cover a wide range of topics, and you can check them all out on my podcast page on my website. second in a series of reflections on world healing. It's a series of podcasts for those of you who are interested in helping the world's evolution through meditation and inner work. These are all based on observations gleaned from 30-ish years of work in this arena. For me, it started with accidental discoveries in the 1980s when I was running camps, and then it led to working with the Council of Nine in the early 1990s, and they were hot on this kind of stuff and taught me a lot, and since then I've been working under their auspices in world healing. to do world healing work without much knowledge of the places and situations we're getting involved with, but this relies on inwardly gaining accurate perceptions of the situation, untainted by media slants, cultural bias or ignorance, and picking up on details during the process that you might not otherwise know. The imagery and emphasis of headline news can distort our picture of what life is really like in a situation we're giving attention to. Even so, we do need to be reasonably well informed because it can help us understand a situation more clearly. Solutions become available that otherwise would not be visible. For example, in an earthquake situation where suffering can be reduced by prioritising the reopening of a destroyed road, then, from a healing viewpoint, it might be appropriate to focus on helping people get the road fixed. It might be better to prioritise this, even over dealing with injured or starving people in the affected area. But if you didn't know about that road, you might not have understood this. So try to avoid rushing a situation because it evokes your sympathy. Sometimes it's necessary to triage the situation, choosing the most effective intervention to make given what you're capable of at the time. Sometimes it's necessary to scan and assess the situation, weighing up what is possible, or considering strategy, or also looking for problems that your intervention might unintentionally introduce. Look for the best way forward. Here's an example. 
in responding to the 2008 Sichuan earthquake, our group, the Flying Squad, was swamped. There were 70,000 dead, including 150 first response workers, and 375,000 injured. Very few details were emerging about it at first, so we had to take an initiative. On investigating inwardly, the shock, pain and disorientation of people who had lost their lives seemed to be obstructing progress, because the confused souls of the dead in thousands were affecting survivors, who themselves were faced with enormous challenges. So we took things village by village, collecting dead souls by identifying deceased village leaders, and getting them to bring their fellow deceased together. And then we led them out in chains of souls holding hands, a bit like Peter Pan, leading them to reception or the holding bay for the newly dead, handing them over to the angels, who were under pressure too. We also passed the message around the newly dead that they indeed were dead, and gradually the idea spread around and souls started understanding more about what had happened and began gathering together. Adopting these methods meant we could do a kind of a bulk rescue, setting off a process whereby, after a while, the dead souls began looking after each other and getting organised. In a way, we were partly helping them and partly helping them help themselves. Using an army as an analogy, Special ops people are fewer in number than ordinary soldiers, and they are skilled, trained, and there to make a specific contribution. They can get to places and do things that ordinary soldiers cannot. But they have backup from the soldiers, and once the special ops people have prepared the ground, then troops, engineers, and aid workers can go in. There are strategic and logistical issues to this, even in the inner worlds. Even so... In spiritual work, we're working in conjunction with real live people on the ground, and in a disaster or emergency, there are two periods to watch for when doing this. The immediate period, the first week, when aid cannot get there. Often it rests a lot on temples, churches, mosques, local doctors and social leaders who themselves might need assistance. Then, later, it can be necessary to revisit and rescan the area to see whether there are remaining troubled souls, blocked or shadowy issues obstructing repair, reconstruction or restoration once they've started up. At the time of 9-11, we knew that plenty of Americans would pitch in to help spiritually, so we left it a while. We looked instead at some of the wider geopolitical implications of that event. Then, after a while, we went to take a look at the site, finding that it was surprisingly clean of dead souls. Someone had done a good job. But we looked further and found three or four more lost souls buried deep in basements, forgotten and, even in the inner worlds, unaccounted for. So we got them out. We weren't big enough to deal with the major catastrophe. Other people handled that. But we were able, as a small group that perhaps looked a bit further than others might, to contribute at the end in a way a bigger group might omit to do. And this is something to consider. If the situation is well covered in the media, or if there's a lot of public sympathy, it's likely that quite a few people will tune into it inwardly, both intentionally and unconsciously. 
so it can be valuable to look for forgotten and overlooked issues, areas and corners that are sidelined, ignored or out of the public eye. Also look for world situations which are forgotten. In 2022, it was places like Yemen, Congo, remoter parts of Myanmar, Syria, Western Sahara, Madagascar, Xinjiang, Lebanon, and if you don't know why, then a little research might be necessary in books, articles and online, and also inwardly by scanning the situation and getting under the carpet. This involves some interest and research in geography and history, and I encourage you to do that, especially with situations and areas that interest you. Look over maps and find out some of the background history from intelligently chosen media articles or books. YouTube videos or other sources can give insights into the background to the situation you're examining. Give some thought to the psychology of the situation and the way that past history affects it, using your empathic abilities to feel people's underlying feelings and to understand what might be a range of competing psychologies that feed into the situation. This can be complex in places such as Israel and Palestine, but finding out about real life there is valuable. As an example, one simple reason why Israeli settlers want to colonize the West Bank of Palestine apart from the tax breaks and other advantages, is that the climate in the upland West Bank is on the whole more pleasant, less polluted and cooler in the hot summer than down in Israel proper. That's an incentive to many settlers, though few outsiders know of it. Then there's media distortion, some of which is deliberate and some of which is cultural or political bias. Judging some things to be good and others bad and tending to oversimplify subtle and complex issues. One big factor here is the news items that the media choose to cover and highlight, and the slant they put on it. Even relatively open-minded media have their own agenda, in UK media such as The Guardian or the BBC, in the choice of what they cover and the way they see it. Try to focus on events and information and less on opinions and statements. Step back and view reported news from a deeper, wider viewpoint. For example, in an argument or conflict, it's not a matter of deciding who is right or wrong or taking sides, since the key issue here is that there is an argument that needs resolving. If you follow conspiracy thinking, then be discerning. Some is useful and accurate, and some is generated by people with an agenda or whose analyses and sources are jilted, or who lack sound historical judgment. In your researches, look for informative background material giving clues about the way the current situation came about. A flooding crisis isn't just about rainfall and climate. It concerns land-use practices, resource distribution, class or race issues, politics, institutions, and the shadows of past history and unresolved crises of many years or generations ago. If you scout around discerningly, it's not too difficult to find informative material. One monthly journal I like is Le Monde Diplomatique, the English version, which covers much of the background perspective around current events. 
On radio and TV, the headline news, a perpetual feed of tension, concern and suspense, is very different in content and balance from the more serious documentaries and discussions aired at off-peak times. Certainly with BBC Radio 4, where off-peak programmes such as The Briefing Room or From Our Own Correspondent or In Our Time can be very informative. As a UK resident, I find the BBC World Service and Al Jazeera to be useful sources that are not pitched for home consumption, as is BBC Radio 4. I tend to read weekly news magazines rather than daily newspapers. I used to read The Guardian Weekly, but changed a while ago to The Economist, because The Guardian Weekly's views are not far from mine, and they tend to massage facts and statistics ideologically to make their point. The Economist, though business-oriented, is good on international news, and it is intelligent and informative in, in approach. Since I don't entirely agree with its viewpoint, I find it easier to pick out the useful from the less useful material in it. So choose your sources awarely, and do bits of research. Don't solely choose sources you agree with. In some things, Wikipedia can be a useful starting place, but not always, it's variable. And on search engines, the first links that come up aren't always the most useful. More likely, they're most popularly pitched. Problem is, as Mark Twain is reputed to have said, if we read the news, we are misinformed, and if we don't read the news, we are uninformed. So be well informed though apply filters to all that you hear on the news. Don't get caught up in the dramas, politicians' speeches, sensational headlines, propaganda and media slants. Look at events themselves to pick up useful information and pay less attention to what people say about them. Look behind and beneath events to gain clues about the underlying agendas, trends, issues, history, problems and available advantages or opportunities. Take an interest in countries and issues that interest you. And here's a final tip. It can be quite useful for useful filtration and gaining background knowledge of events to read last week's news. Active service as a soul. The main issue in life is to be a good person, avoiding harming others, and that itself is not an easy path. Then there is carrying out a proactive contribution to making the world a better place, which can take many forms, including campaigning and fundraising for good causes, activism to pursue your beliefs, taking on a duty of service, helping out through volunteering, pursuing our life's calling, and meditation, inner work, and group work. There might be more, but this will do. Some people have a distinct metaphysical capacity that makes consciousness work a very viable way of making a contribution. For others, such work can help toward other activities they are dedicated to, or add a subsidiary focus in life that is really meaningful, this was true for me in my humanitarian work in Palestine, in which meditation helps with processing issues and situations one finds oneself involved with. In a discussion with the Council of Nine in the early 1990s, someone asked whether there is one thing humanity could do that would tip the scales and bring about the necessary big changes that are needed in our, in our world. 
Their simple answer was that things would change if everyone pursued the purpose for which they were born. We need to remember why we're here and fulfill a soul contract we made before birth, before we came. Each of us has personalized instructions lodged deep within, presenting themselves to us through life, and inner work can help us dig them up. The main point here is that meditation and consciousness work are but one way of contributing. They become more effective when practiced in connection with one or a few of the other activities suggested above. For me, activism and life's work have gone hand in hand with consciousness work, and they feed, help and inform one another. Humanitarian work has given me insights into real life in troubled countries, which has been really useful in consciousness work, and meditation has helped me solve problems and gain deeper insights into situations I've met in my humanitarian work. Activism has helped ground my spiritual work, testing my capacity to walk my talk. There are many ways of doing consciousness work with the world. Simply carrying out a spiritual practice and working on personal growth does help tilt the balance of world consciousness. But sometimes we can become so preoccupied with our own reality bubbles and struggling to do our best with them that we forget there is a wider area needing attention, the world and the universe. Gurdjieff called this partkolg duty, a Russian term, serving the world and the universe. We have areas of duty to ourselves, to our loved ones, our communities, the world and to higher powers, deities, the management or God. Sometimes I call it HP source. Reconciling the competing claims of these duties can sometimes be a challenge. In modern society, commitment to community, world and universe are implicitly discouraged, set aside or relegated, subject to no-time syndrome. Consciousness work at the world and universe level can help us balance things up in our lives, not least because the actual time needed for it is not great if practiced steadily over time. We need to pace ourselves and set the dials thoughtfully. Otherwise there can be a dramatic burst of enthusiastic activity followed by a drop-off because too ambitious a commitment was taken on, or it became more difficult than it first appeared, or an intervening crisis or distraction came along, as they do. For many people it can be their children, but even children can go along with a parent meditating if it is calmly, factually and firmly carried out so that they can adjust to it over time, or even in some cases join in. There's an extra dimension to this. The universe level, the crown chakra, is the top level, and when we clarify our relationship with the universe, with our soul, it reprioritizes, realigns, and remagnetizes all the other levels that are in operation in our lives, tending to heal and resolve all of them, and to present us with learning experiences that help the whole of us to progress. In the Hundredth Monkey Project and the Flying Squad, two world healing projects I've been involved with over the last 30 years, we discovered two big things. First, Though we were doing world work in our retreats and inner practice, personal growth was much increased and accelerated by doing so. 
many participants' lives changed remarkably, even though personal growth was not the primary intention. And, if one makes a 100% commitment to prioritizing the meditation and consciousness work without fail, it gets easier and much more profound. It becomes a life pattern lived out without question, like having breakfast or donning clothes in the morning. However, we kept our commitment to this work minimal and doable, since, if it becomes stressful keeping such a commitment, it is better to reduce its scope and demands than to drop it. Make it manageable and doable, and this keeps it sustainable. Once a week works well for many people. One further benefit of making a 100% commitment was that in our group, we all knew everyone else would be present during the meditations. We also had weekend meetings three times a year. These allowed us to bond, synergize and draw together as a real team, and this strengthened the group immensely. Over time, we worked through many of the personality and group dynamics aspects of group life, melding together closely over the years. In the end, after 20 years, and due to dwindling numbers through natural drop-off, when we went down to three members, we cleanly closed the group, releasing ourselves from our group duties. All the same, each of us individually continued with the meditations anyway, independently, and we still do. Many people cannot make such a commitment as their lives stand, and that's all right too. In such a situation, it's a matter of doing what we can, joining in when we can, it can be valuable having both committed and less committed circles of people. The Sunday meditations are open to regulars and to occasional meditators, and everyone may do what best suits them. It's possible to think in terms of two contrasting approaches to meditative world work. One works non-specifically to help raise the general consciousness and the state of humanity, or in connection with a generalized theme such as forests, international conferences, poverty, or artificial intelligence, while the other involves forms of visualization and inner experience taking a more direct action and interventionist approach, often used in disaster relief, conflicts, key defining moments, or in connection with a specific chosen event or theme. This enters the realm of psychic work, out-of-body astral travel and remote viewing, zoning into specific situations to play a part in them with a view to helping resolve or unblock issues or to help bring about progress and breakthrough amidst difficult situations. In each of these, everyone has our own style, background and abilities, and it's favourable to work with these individual capacities and develop them. There can be benefits to following specific methods and being trained in them, but the advantage of a more freestyle approach is that it becomes more of a multi-pronged attack for application in complex situations. Considering that many humans often feel significant resistance to change and to positive influences, a diverse approach like this has a way of getting through to the target. Someone in the group will find a way in that can help the work of the group as a whole if there is a certain level of synergistic harmonization to that group. And this is important. When working in the Holy Land, we would have groups of people coming from America and Europe who had undergone peacemaking and conflict resolution trainings, 
who tended to superimpose their structures and methodologies on the complex situation in Palestine and Israel without fully perceiving the situation as it really was. So the value of such groups to the work being done on the ground was limited. Trying to show Palestinians what to do would often raise a collective grin or a sigh or departures from the room. At one stage, an Oxford academic visited the pioneering Hope Flowers School in Bethlehem, where I worked, proposing to offer three places per year to Palestinian students at Oxford's Peace Studies course. This theoretically was a valuable offer, except for one thing. Palestine stands at the front line of peacemaking know-how and experience. They've had multi-generations of it. I suggested that it might be better for Oxford students to spend a year in Palestine, staying in refugee camps, not hotels, and working at ground level in schools, with house rebuilding and in women's empowerment groups. As a way of connecting inner work with our own lives, events out there in the wider world sometimes affect us emotionally, both for individuals and collectively. In some way, they come to us because something inside us attracts them, they trigger fermentation processes within. From a soul viewpoint, they're presented to us for our learning and growth. This emotional impact is worth making use of in a healing context, though. A woman who has been raped will feel an affinity with other rape victims, and rape is a major issue in conflict zones and insecure situations. A man who's been in the army will have had stirring experiences of a different kind as a result of what he has been involved with, and I can verify from personal experience that doing inner work is a good way of dealing with PTSD, though I haven't been a soldier. This is a delicate matter, because we must not let our pain or judgments prejudice a situation, yet such pain is also a source of emotional spiritual charge that gives power, empathy and understanding to a meditation. It also heals us since, in our own sufferings, we tend to feel alone, so connecting with others sharing our particular issues can lead to an inner dialogue that can have a healing effect on both parties. Tibetans call this tonglen, or give and take, a meditative method that starts with breathing in the suffering of others and breathing out compassion for them and working on from there to inwardly connecting with people in similar situations to our own. As part of my process of dealing with my own cancer, I've connected with other cancer patients around the world in this way. Often they're isolated and not in receipt of the medical care I'm privileged to receive, and at times I've sat alongside them as they die. It's helped me feel less alone with my own problem and appreciate how lucky I am despite the rigours of living with cancer. I've learned some tricks for dealing with cancer too from them. I hope it has helped those unknown others that I've connected with. And this brings up a key issue in world healing. It's not just about giving. It's about energy exchange. We, in our own lives and countries, have our strengths and weaknesses. Other people elsewhere even if living in a seemingly benighted country, have theirs too. This is a basis for such energy exchange. In my work in Palestine, I was very aware that, while Europeans are largely materially well-off and secure, Palestinians are socially well-off, 
with strong families, communities and tribes in ways we Europeans need to learn about for our own benefit. Unemployment and hardship levels are high, yet everyone is busy looking after each other and everyone is catered for. It's not helpful to get stuck in the Judeo-Christian idea that we, the fortunate, the all-knowing, the free and strong ones, are simply, in our charity, here to help others. They help us too, often helping us become more human. They experience what they experience on our behalf, as we do for them. If, that is, we look at life from the viewpoint of collective consciousness. A fundamental principle of white magic is that it brings benefit all round. It helps the universe unfold and progress. If you want to find out more about me, go to my website at palden.co.uk. The music was by a good friend in Oregon called Galen Hefferman. Thanks for listening, and there's more to come. <laughs> <laughs>